church. How are you guys doing today? Um, that's good. I'm doing well. I am happy to be here. Rick, you're going to move this stuff, yeah? That's a lot of stuff. You're strong. He's kind of strong. Um, <clears throat> it's good to see you guys. It is an honor for me to be up here. I always say that um, when I am preaching, and I want you guys to know I mean it. I'm not just saying that. Um, I am honored to be here to share God's word. I'm honored that Pastor Ernesto trusts me enough to share with you. I'm honored that, you know, I know that there are some of you guys that are like, man, I'm so excited to see my pastor. You guys looked around and you were like, where's the big Mexican guy at? And then you saw the mic in my ear and you're like, uh-oh. <clears throat> I'm glad that you stayed. I'm glad that you stayed. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. We appreciate that. And so uh, <clears throat> we're going to get into it today. We always get into it. I'm like an excited guy. I can be a loud guy. You know, if, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. I'm just excited. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling with you. So, uh, you know, this time around, Pastor Ernesto told me he wanted me to preach like the last time I preached, was, which was on Daniel. A long time ago. He was like, hey, dude, I need you to preach in February. Can you do that? I was like, oh, yeah, it's tons of time, dude. That's awesome. Like, let me check with Jamie. There's one week I can't do. Just tell me what passage I'm preaching. Like, that's it. He's all right. So I text him like a month later. I'm like, what's up, dude? Like, you know, anything? We got anything figured out? He's like, I got to text James and John. We got to figure some stuff out. I'm like, all right, cool. Just, yeah, I don't want to pick my own passage. Pastor Ernesto texted us like, hey, like, do you want to do this or that? I go, guys, I don't care what we do. I just don't want to pick my own passage. Pastor Ernesto texted me a couple weeks ago and was like, guys, guess what we're doing? We're picking our own parable. <laughs> Guys, I know that parable is a different word from passage, but it means the same thing. That's the same thing. I was like, oh, man, God bless you, Ern. Like, I love you. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my inclination is to be a stinker butt. Like, I wanted to, like, give him, you know, a little bit of business, but I didn't. I give Ernesto enough of the business. He doesn't need the business from me. He's busy. So, you know, I just didn't want to pick my own passage. You know, there's like a weird connotation with picking your own passage because it's like, man, this guy thought he needed to tell us this, right? It's like if I was preaching on Leviticus, it's like, well, that's what was up. I mean, I just preached what I, but now I had to pick one. You know what, guys? Honestly, he told me pick your own parable. I wanted to be like a little bit of a grumbler, but immediately that emotion changed because a parable came to my mind immediately. And uh, it's not because of just this church. It's because this parable has been changing my life for the past couple years. And I think about this parable probably a couple times a week. And uh, you guys ever have those moments in life where you're walking through life and you see the world a certain way, and then someone says something or someone does something, and it shifts your lens. It changes the way that you see the world. It's like you get a new prescription, and you can never see it a different way. Guys, that happened to me when I was at Trinity. Um, I went to Trinity for grad school uh, in the Old Testament program. My professor said this thing to me. He goes, Jared, I think there are a lot more goats in the church than we realize. 
I think there are a lot more goats in the church than we realize. And that changed my perspective. Uh, Church, we're going to be in the parable of the sheep and the goats today. So that's Matthew 25, verse 31, if you want to flip there. Matthew 25, verse 31. Before we get into it, though, let's pray. Lord, I want to come to you today. I want to thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you uh, and speak with you and uh, to speak to these people, Lord. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would be with me today and be with us. Open our hearts. Uh, I ask that you would, uh, where I fail in my words, Lord, I ask that you would, you would use my words for good. Uh, and Lord, I ask that uh, you would just bless us today. Um, amen. So, the parable of the sheep and the goats. I don't know if it was explained because we've been going through some of Jesus' parables. A parable is a certain way to read them. A parable is a true story. A parable is not a true story in the idea that, like, it happened to Griffin two weeks ago. It's not like that. A parable is a story with made-up components that... uh, represents a universal truth. It almost explains like Proverbs or something. And Jesus would often teach in parables. It would be about like a man. It wasn't about Tim. It was about a man. And it represented this idea. And so, guys, as you read parables, the way to understand them is to look for the poetry in them, the images that are used, and try and understand how those images are being used. So when we read this passage today, look for the poetry. Look for the image that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses to express this idea. So I'm going to read Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, just look for the poetry. Right, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous 
into eternal life. That's the end of the parable. And uh, I want to point out some unique things about the parable. The first thing I want to point out, this is almost not a parable. This is almost not a parable. The only reason that we categorize it as a parable is because of the image of the sheep and the goats and the shepherd. But guys, this passage can most accurately be defined as an apocalyptic passage. This is a prophetic passage. This is telling us, this is Jesus telling us what's going to happen in the end days. And church, let me tell you, if I had asked myself two years ago if I would personally pick a prophetic passage to preach on, an apocalyptic passage, I would have told you no way. I don't like preaching the apocalypse. You know why? Because I think we read it wrong a lot. I think that Americans in particular are obsessed with apocalypse because we like to think that we're in the end of the world. Like, we like to be like, yes, end times for sure. We like to look at images and go, ah, the bear and the chicken and the snake and the eagle, and they all represent countries and stuff. And we like to place ourselves at the end. Church, I don't like doing that. I don't think that's how you're supposed to read it. But church, this passage, I can preach this one. It does particularly pertain to everyone in this room. And church, if we were to read this passage the way we're inclined to, a very easy passage, right? Jesus, in the end of days, sits on his throne, right? The Son of Man, Jesus, sits on his throne, and he separates the sheep from the goats. We want to read that as, as good guys and bad guys, right? We want to read that as believers and unbelievers. That's how we're inclined to do it. And that's easy. Like, what, Jared, I know that Jesus is going to send bad guys to hell and good guys to heaven. Let's get out of here. But guys, that's not what Jesus is saying. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. And there are some people that say that's what it is. I think that there is a much more responsible reading of this passage, and I want to point to the image of sheep and goats to get us there. Church, if I were to walk a sheep and a goat out right now, who could tell me the difference? That's impressive. Well, aren't you, don't you do, like, farm stuff? Like, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm a white boy, but I'm not, like, the countryest of all. I'm not a farm white boy. Like, I don't know the difference between sheep and goats. Like, I had to Google it. That's what, like, a preacher does when he doesn't know something. He types it into Google. Um, I was like, what is the difference between a sheep and a goat? And what I found very quickly was they're almost the same. Sheep and goats are almost the same. Like, there are articles that are written that are like, yeah, their ears are slightly different, their tails are slightly different. But guys, look at the image that Jesus gives us. He's sitting on a throne, he's looking out at all the nations, and there are sheep and goats there. If you're looking at a mass of sheep and goats, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, right? Not from, you would have to, Jesus would have to take them aside and look at them. Church, Jesus uses the image of sheep and goats, I believe, because he is talking about everyone who claims to believe in Jesus Christ. See, he would use a different image, I believe. 
We have images of bad guys, right? If it was good guys and bad guys, why is it not sheep from wolves? Wolves is a common image that's used for bad guys. Uh, snakes, another common image. Why would Jesus use something that looks so similar? Because Jesus is telling us, there are those of us who claim to believe. There are those of us that think we're in the flock and we walk around amongst the flock and we think that we believe in Christ. But Jesus is telling us, in the end of days, I'm going to pull each one of you aside. I'm going to look at you. And I'm going to separate you, the sheep, into the goats. And guys, that's scary, right? That makes this passage so much more potent than good guys and bad guys. And the reason I think it's scary to us is because we have been given this idea that if you say the sinner's prayer, you're good to go. We've gotten that from the great revival, right? It's like, hey, brother, you want to make sure you go to heaven? Say this prayer. Repeat after me. You're good to go. They give you this idea, and this is in the Bible. Once you're in you know, God's poem, no one can take you out of it. But they use this idea to act like you could just slip yourself in there and then just act however you want. And church, Jesus is saying that's not the way it is. There are those of you who think that you know me. There are those of you who claim to follow me. You're in the flock, but you're going to be kicked out. You're going to be gone. And church, concerning passage. Because, as my professor said, I think there are a lot more goats in the church than we realize. My professor also said, I think we need to look at ourselves and ask, am I a goat? Because the goats think they're in the, the flock. It is arrogant to think, ah, certainly not me. Certainly not me. It's arrogant. And so church, if that was all Christ was trying to say, if he was like, in the end, some of you guys are out, that would stink. That would not be, that would be a bad passage. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus gives us the criteria by which he is going to assess us. He gives us the criteria by which he is going to assess us. And I want you to look at verse 34. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed, so the sheep, by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, or because, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying. See, Jesus says, he defines the sheep as the righteous. He calls them the righteous. He calls them the blessed, too. He calls the goats the cursed. But guys, by him listing those things and then calling the sheep righteous, Jesus is defining righteousness to us. You see, Jesus, as a person who existed, he constantly was redefining our expectations. He was redefining Jewish expectation, and he was redefining our own expectation. Right? The Jews thought that Jesus was going to come as a king, and he was going to overthrow Rome. And he was going to reestablish the earthly kingdom of Israel. 
Jesus subverts that expectation. That's not what happens at all. The kingdom that is promised is spiritual. Jesus is a subverter of expectation. He redefines things. And guys, at the time, the Jewish people had their own definition of righteousness. This righteousness was promoted by the Pharisees. And they would say, this is the crazy things they would say. They would pray to God in the streets, thanking him that they weren't born a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. That is crazy! But that is what the standard of righteousness was to these Jewish people. Like, they had all of these rules set up. They were like, uh, if you do this on the Sabbath, then you're not righteous. Jesus is subverting that. He's redefining righteousness. And so, guys, we can look at the Jewish people and say, geez, that's crazy how they used to do that. But church, we have our own definition of righteousness, too. And I see it in the American church, and it is toxic, and it is concerning. And I think a lot of that comes from social media. The way in which we conduct ourselves on social media, it's like this huge platform. We have, and I think we've inherited it from the Puritans, this idea that if you do so many good things, you're going to be righteous, if you do, you know, and everyone's definition is different. Uh, one time someone was telling me, one time someone was telling me about how their son was going to Bible college. And, uh, man, he's just really concerned with doing what's right. He's really concerned with doing what's right. He's a good kid. And I'm like, huh, that's another way to say righteousness, right? Someone who's doing what's right. They go, yeah, he's so concerned with doing what's right. He didn't go to his cousin's uh, wedding because she had a baby out of wedlock. Hmm, that's interesting. Church, that's not righteousness. That's their definition of righteousness. And it's wrong. What is that? It's not righteousness, that's wrongness. Is that, can I do that? Can I do that? And make up my own word? Church, that's wrong. We have defined righteousness in our own eyes. And we all have these different things. The church is split into different denominations. And we think that, well, if you don't believe in eternal security or if you don't believe in uh, cutting your hair right or wearing this right amount of clothes, you're not going to heaven. You're not actually saved. And people are planting their flags all over this nation. And they are preaching about what they think righteousness is. Church, I've heard pastors from the pulpit say, if you do not vote Republican... You are not righteous. Now that's a paraphrase, but that's what they're getting at. I've heard pastors say, if you don't have the democratic heart, then you are not righteous. Church, both are wrong. Both are wrong. We are not to be concerned with politics. We've made politics our righteousness. I see people do this all the time on Facebook. Look, Asbury Church. People talking about this revival. People are planting their flags. Do you believe in the revival or you don't? Guys, we are fighting in front of the world. And we are squabbling. And we are not representing what true righteousness is. Church, what is true righteousness? What does Christ define as righteousness? 
That's what we need to see. Church, I see the church failing. Not this church in particular, but I see around me tons of people who claim to believe. There's a church I drive by all the time, and they had a sign out front for months that said, America will be saved. Interesting. That sign was out front for months, and you know when it went down? Right after the election. I don't know who they supported. I don't know if it was, you know, red or blue. It doesn't matter. That is wrong. That is looking for a Messiah and a politician. It is the wrong place of righteousness. We as a church think that it is our job to tell opinions and to have the right opinions. If you don't have the right opinion, then you're not being righteous. Church, that is not what Christ wants us to do here. That is not what Christ wants us to do. He's redefining righteousness. And so let's, let's look at what Jesus defines righteousness as. In verse 35 it says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Guys, Jesus defines righteousness as helping those who are suffering. Helping those in need. Helping those who are oppressed by this world. That is the measure by which Christ will look at us and say, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Do you help those in need? Do you have a heart for the oppressed of this world? It is that simple. We want to make it difficult because it makes us feel right. We want to look and say, you must agree with my brain because I'm so smart and so spiritual. But church, that's not what it is. It is simply, does your heart go out for those in need? And Jesus uses uh, very pointed examples, right? It's food, drink, shelter, clothes, and companionship. Jesus uses those reasons because those are the basic things that we need to be human. Church, to be denied one of those things is to be denied your humanity. Your base humanity. And church, the world denies people their humanity all the time, right? The world's like, I don't care if you uh, have been paying rent for the past 11 months. This is month 12 and you're out of here, bro. Deny you your shelter. Deny you your food. People are hungry. People starve in this world. That is a denial of people's humanity. Jesus says, you must, as a follower of me, affirm people's humanity. If your heart does not go out for those who are denied their humanity, you are not a follower of me. We are called as Christians to affirm the humanity of everyone. We are called as Christians to look at each one of you who are made in the image of God and say, I see that image and I don't want you to suffer. Church, why does Jesus make humanity the catching point? I think that's a question that is worth asking. I think it's twofold. 
I think that we find the answer in the placement of this passage. Church, this is the last thing that Matthew has Jesus say before he is crucified. This is the last thing. Everything after this is a passion narrative. He dies, he resurrects. This is the last thing. Church, when you're writing a a story, I write stories, Angie reads them and tells me how bad they are. Um, When you are writing a story and your main character is about to go die, the last thing he says is not a pizza order. It's important. Church, Christ is telling us this is the most important thing. There are other important things. But Christ wants us to know in the end of days, he is going to look at us and assess whether or not our hearts go out to the needy. Church, it's the last thing he says. And after this passage, we get two images of Jesus Christ. First, Jesus is the apex of suffering. Jesus is the great sufferer, right? We're about to read a narrative where Jesus dies on the cross and he is beaten and he is stabbed. We're going to watch an innocent man who preached about love be spit on. He has denied his humanity. He says, I'm thirsty. And they give him vinegar. They deny his humanity. Jesus Christ is the apex of suffering. And therefore, church, if we look at those who are suffering and we deny their humanity, we deny Jesus Christ. If you can look at people suffering and say, I don't care, shouldn't have done that, dude. Shouldn't have become a drug addict, bro. Should have made good decisions like me. You deny their humanity. Jesus says to do that is to deny me. Jesus is the apex of suffering. He is the pinnacle. He is the great sufferer. And so we see Jesus Christ. We should. Those of us who follow him should see Jesus Christ in those who are oppressed by this world. He was oppressed and they are too. The other part of it. We get this image of Jesus being the great sufferer, right? We also get this image of him being the greatest justice warrior we've ever seen. You see, church, each and every one of us, the Bible says, was born with a desire to sin. We were born with it because of Adam's sin. We are imbued with something. We are are impelled to commit heinous crimes against righteousness, that is in our hearts because of something Adam did. Does that sound like justice to you? Church, you are born to be an image bearer of God, but that image is broken because if God is perfect and I am imperfect, I literally am born not able to complete the task that God made me for. Does that sound like justice to you? No. Of course, the wages of sin is death, and I sin all the time, and therefore, I do deserve death. But Christ knows that it's not that black and white. And Christ knows that he needed to fight for our justice. Christ goes to the cross and bears the weight of our sin, and he restores to us our image. 
He gives us back our purpose. He says, you were wronged by your mere existence. You were not able to do what you were made to do, which is be with God and look like him. Christ restores that. He fights for our justice. Church, we too are called to fight for the justice of the oppressed. We too are called to fight for those who need help in this world. We are not called to deny their humanity, but to affirm it. That is why we are put on this earth. Church, it is through our fight for justice that we will show the world Christ. It is not through seven tirades about uh, whether or not you think abortion is all right. That is not how you show the world the love of God. Now, you can have opinions about that. Fine. I'm not saying Christians cannot have opinions. I'm saying that the way in which we represent ourselves to the world should be one of love. To use the abortion thing, for example, if you post on Facebook about how ashamed you are of abortion in America, you know what you tell every woman that's had an abortion? Don't come talk to me. Shameful. We are not representing Christ. When we plant our flags and idolize our own righteousness, our own definition of righteousness, and we put it out to the world, we think our opinions matter so much. They don't see Christ in that. They don't see Christ in that. You know what? There probably is an objective truth about there is an objective truth. God is that objective truth. But church, we're not called to be the judger of others. That's up to God. We are called to be fighters for those in need, those who suffer. Well, most people who get an abortion get it because they're suffering. They need something. It is a response to something that life has, has slighted them of. Church, we must redirect the way that we view this world. Our response should be one of love. We are called to fight for justice. That is our calling. And what church? Our church, me and Jamie drive 45 minutes every week. We live in Waterford, houses in Waterford. You know, I look at this church, though, I see what Earn does, and I want to be a part of it because our church does a good job. Our church does a good job. Ernesto right now is preaching to the Dali people. Those are people who are less than animals in the Indian government's eyes. Ernesto literally, Ernesto and Angie put themselves in harm's way. A mob came after them, and Angie was like, let them kill us, because maybe they'll come to know Christ. That is fighting for justice. But church, we are not going to be assessed by what Ernesto does. We're not going to be assessed by what John does. Jesus says, in the end of days, I will sit on my throne and I will look at each and every one of you. And I will say, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Church, it is imperative to us to look at our own hearts. Um. I'm not saying that your heart has to always love people all the time. 
I, uh, when I moved to Chicago for Moody, we moved there and there were homeless people and we were like giving them their food and we're like, oh my goodness, Chicago. My dad came back six months later. We're walking by and some homeless dude goes to ask us for money and I was like, my dad said I gave him the death stare. Like I just shot him down and the dude just walked away. That is a denial of someone's humanity. Like my attitude towards homeless people in Chicago was like, get out of here, bro. Now, I'm not saying that you have to give money every time, but like John said last week, if you're called to do it, do it. Never have the attitude that a homeless person is uh, where they are because of their decisions and they deserve it. Church, that's not our call as the church. Our call as the church is to love people and understand. It's to fight for their humanity. We're called to do that. I'm reading a book right now. It is called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And the thrust of the book is, basically it's going through the history of the church's involvement in the lynchings in America. And it is a heartbreaking book. One of the main things that I pull from this book is the truth that Many, many people who attended lynchings, there would be 5,000, 10,000 people at these lynchings. And many of them would take pictures, they'd send them to family members, they would cut off these people's limbs, they would let their women and children do it, and then they'd send it to grandma and be like, look what we did. Those people that attended those lynchings, they went to lynchings on Saturday and they went to church on Sunday. It's a lot of goats, friends, to deny someone's humanity. The thrust of the book is that black people lynched in America are a representation of Jesus Christ suffering on the cross. An innocent man hung on a tree who did no wrong and had their humanity denied. A lot of goats back then. Church, I think it's arrogant to think that we're past it. I think that it would be foolish to not look amongst us and say, what else is going on? It's not that long ago that those lynchings happened. There are people alive in America today who were there, who were at lynchings. That's how close it is to us. That's sad. The church has failed. The other thrust of that book is that the church did not respond right. Of course we didn't. Church, what can we do now? What can we do now? That's what I want to put to you. How do we affirm people's humanity? I watched a video of Tyree Nichols get beat to death. Church, I'm not saying to hate the police. I love the police. My best friend is a police officer. He's sitting right back there. But church, when we get on social media or we talk in front of the world and we say, well, those police officers were black, so whatever, bro. When we do that, we deny that boy's humanity. That boy who is crying for his mother. That is not what we're supposed to do. We are not called to do that. We are not called to politicize every little thing because when we politicize things, we deny people's humanity. 
We turn them into pawns in our talking conversation. Talking conversation is redundant, but I am upset. <laughs> We're not called to do that, church. You can have opinions about how we can fix this world, and you can actively pursue those opinions. It's not left or right. It's somewhere in between. But church, our call is to affirm the humanity of people. Our call is to impact this world for good. Look at the East Palatine Railroad. Uh, you know, <clears throat> the government just denied them help. Now, we could take that and we could be like, look at the guy in charge. What a dingus. You should have voted for my guy. No. Those people have been removed from their homes. To politicize it is a shame. And that's both sides do that. Church, we're not called to do that. The Bible says, Christ says, we are called to love, to have a heart for those who are oppressed. And that should be our goal. That's how we show them Christ. We fight for the justice of those who are oppressed by this world. He fought for justice for us. He restored our humanity. With that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to come to you today and uh, thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, I want to just uh, thank you for your word. I ask that you would soften our hearts and uh, make us better Christians. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us in this walk. Um, I just ask for your blessing, Lord, and I just want to express gratitude to be a part of a church that is so involved in impacting uh, the oppressed lives. Lord, I love you so much, and I thank you. In your name I pray, amen.